tuning in. My name is Dr. Lara Greenfield from laragreenfield.com, and you are listening to Let's Talk Facilitation. I teach college educators to be outstanding, socially just class discussion facilitators. My primary focus is to help educators, including those who are nervous public speakers, to recognize the potential they already have within themselves to be outstanding facilitators, and then to support them in developing purposeful practices. Today, we're talking about how to prepare for difficult discussions. I'm going to share with you my go-to method for supporting a group that can handle the hard stuff. I chose this topic today because difficult discussions are a particular sticking point for facilitators who care deeply about their work, but who feel nervous about their ability to effectively guide a group when there is discomfort, tension, or outright conflict. Because conflict can be so unpleasant, you might be tempted to avoid bringing up important topics or raising questions that really need to be examined such as racism or homophobia or sexism. But I bet you also feel guilty when you shy away from that difficult work because you know remaining silent perpetuates the injustices you're dreaming about disrupting. I know how intimidating difficult discussions can be, and boy have I had my fair share of discussions that totally bombed. I remember when I was a new teacher still in graduate school teaching a course in advanced writing, and it was a wonderful group. It was a great class. I was really enjoying how things were going, but about midway through the semester, it became clear that I needed to address some unchecked linguistic racism that was emerging through students' comments. Now, at the time, I really didn't have the tools to lead such a discussion. And so I ran with my conviction, but boy, was it messy. I resorted to really directly calling everyone out, putting them on the spot, naming it for what it was, which I still do think has a a place um, in disrupting racism. But from there, I really had no idea how to teach or reach the group in a way that was actually going to inspire any sort of change. And it really backfired. It broke the students' trust in me. It messed up the dynamics of the group. Um, I don't think they really learned anything new about racism um, because of my approach. And the rest of the class was really a wash. In my next episode, I'm going to talk about what to do when really messy conflict emerges. But today, we're going to take a step back and talk about what we can do to minimize the potential for that messy conflict to show up in the first place when we invite our classes to courageously engage in difficult discussions. Now, there's no way to guarantee that conflicts don't erupt. And in fact, we do want disagreement to appear in our discussions so that we can tackle different points of view and really go deep on important subjects. But there are steps that we can take to more confidently build a proactive strategy to prepare a group to engage meaningfully in difficult discussions. So I'm going to share with you my go-to method for building those strong dynamics. 
my first part of that method is to create group norms. Sometimes we call these community guidelines or class expectations. So what are these group norms? Well, they're a set of expectations about how the group will interact with one another. In a way, it's a contract that outlines the do's and don'ts of interacting. Now, why create such norms? Well, it gives the group shared expectations or a game plan. We might even think about it as guidance. Um, it's an opportunity to address the types of common patterns that students can anticipate and be aware of so that they can engage in more productive uh, ways. So it's a way to have a transparent conversation, um, to make space for different voices to be heard, and to address philosophical disagreements from the start and find resolution before you dive into those really difficult discussions. So I want to share with you a few examples of what sorts of expectations you might put into a group norm statement. One might be confidentiality. If students are going to be sharing personal stories or sensitive points of view, they may not want everybody on campus to know about it. And so you might have an agreement where we keep uh, personal stories or identifying information in the classroom, but not beyond. Another example of a group norm might be the idea of make space, take space. And this is really an invitation to students to be mindful of how much they are contributing. So to uh, challenge themselves to speak up if they tend to be soft-spoken or to pull back if they tend to talk more than their share. Another norm might be to invite people to speak for yourself but not for others. In other words, to be mindful of assumptions you make about we or they um, and instead speak from the place of I. Another norm might be to um, ask students to give one another the benefit of the doubt. So um, that might look like requesting more information before rushing to judgment if a student makes a comment uh, that you disagree with. Another norm might be to prioritize voices of students targeted by the systems of oppression that you're discussing. So depending on the particular topic that you're addressing, there might be students who uh, need to step back and listen, and others who, if they choose to have the floor, um, should be given that space to share. Another norm might be uh, to wait to be called on rather than interject uh, unprompted. Um, or perhaps you might have the opposite norm, that we're not going to wait to be called on, that people should feel free to simply speak up when they so desire. So there are many more types of norms that you might come up with or that your students might come up with. Um, and indeed, sometimes professors will create such a list in advance and share those with the groups as the expectation for their class. Um, other times, a professor will lead a discussion to collectively generate these ideas with the students. Um, and so the students really come up with the list together. Now, it can be tempting to skip 
making group norms. Um, it might seem like, oh, it's tedious. We don't really need them. People know helpful ways to participate. Um, but I would really caution you against skipping this step. I have definitely regretted it when I haven't made the group norms. Now, many facilitators are familiar with this practice of creating group norms, but don't find it particularly effective. And in fact, complain that I, I created these norms, but still all sorts of problems came up throughout the semester. And the reason why they are continuing to have challenges is because I believe they're missing the other two parts of the method that I'm gonna share with you. And these other two parts of the method are absolutely necessary for those group norms to even matter. So the, the second part of my method is to discuss as a class a plan for how to respond to violations of the agreement. In other words, as part of these early discussions, you want to collaboratively decide what you're going to do if someone doesn't follow the norms. Now, why should you have this conversation? Well, it's to help you as a group move from intention to action. So it's moving from these abstract values that you have named to a concrete system to support the inaction of those values. It's also a way to have a strategy in place before a conflict emerges. It's really hard in the midst of conflict, not only to solve the conflict, but to come up with the method that you're going to use to solve the conflict. So this takes care of at least one of those challenges by creating the method in advance. And doing so gives you confidence when those conflicts emerge that you are intervening in a way that is in line with what the class agreed to do at the beginning. Now, how do you go about making such a plan? Well, in order to do this, those community norms that you created earlier should be put in writing. So perhaps as you're brainstorming them with the group, somebody is writing them on the board, and then afterwards they are copied and distributed so that everyone has access. So maybe it's on a printout, maybe there's a Google Doc or a course website where they're posted, but some way that people can access it throughout the course. And then you've got these in front of you as you are discussing how you might respond to uh, people breaking these expectations. And so what that might look like is soliciting suggestions from the class. How do we respond? Um, inviting responses from the peers uh, to those suggestions and then negotiating collectively until you can reach an agreement about the methods that you will use. So for example, you might pose to the class the question, what should we do or say if someone jumps the queue and interrupts? So if you as a group have decided that one of the norms is that people should raise their hand and be called on before speaking, you're going to ask the group, so what do we do if somebody doesn't raise their hand? What if they just jump in and interrupt? So there's lots of possible ways you might uh, intervene in that moment. And so the class may share different ideas about what should be done. Maybe they'll say, well, the professor should say something to cut them off. Or maybe the class will say, actually, anyone should jump in to say something. Um, 
and let them know they need to wait their turn. Um, or maybe the class should say, you know, we're going to be a little patient with one another. We're going to let it go the first time. But if it happens repeatedly, then the professor should talk to them privately. Um, or maybe the group will come up with a word or a phrase that they can say as a kind reminder to alert someone if they have misstepped. So for example, we might say, oops, if somebody interrupts. And that will be the cue that, uh-oh, you, you broke the, the code um, and need to uh, step back. Now, as you are devising this method, you want to write down the action plan. So you have your norms written down, but you also want to accompany that with a written agreement about what the strategy is going to be for how to respond if a expectation isn't followed. And finally, the third part of the method, and in many ways the most important part of this method, is to check in periodically with the class to assess how well the guidelines are working. In other words, how well is the group adhering to the expectations? How are people experiencing the dynamics of the group in real time? as compared to the intentions that were set out at the beginning. Now, why should you do this kind of check-in? Well, it's easy to state a bunch of norms at the beginning and then check off that box as completed and then forget about it the rest of the semester. So by checking in periodically, it holds you and the students accountable to follow through on what you said you were going to do. It also provides opportunity for praise. Following these norms, especially in light of difficult discussions, is, is challenging and it's something worthy of acknowledgement when people do the hard work of um, getting it right. Um, so it gives you the chance to acknowledge your successes, but it also provides the opportunity to acknowledge the ongoing challenges so that you can work through them. Um, it's rare if not uh, impossible to have a perfect group um, and, a, and a perfect way of being together and so inevitably bumps are going to come up and so this is a way to work through them productively. Having these check-ins also provides you with a chance to course correct before a brewing problem erupts into something bigger. So you can catch things uh, before it's, it's too late. Another advantage of these check-ins is that it helps build trust between you and the students because they see that you take the community seriously and care about their experience, that you're going beyond just lip service to actually uh, change how you are engaging with the group based on their feedback. Now, how do you go about checking in with the students? How do you go about getting this information? I think there are two types of methods that can be used together. The first is to solicit anonymous or private feedback. So that might be using a Google form or SurveyMonkey or a um, maybe a form that's available on an online platform that your school uses. Um, it could even be something as simple as asking people for some written thoughts at the end of class. 
having the opportunity to be anonymous or private allows more students who are uncertain about revealing certain experiences uh, to be able to do so with a little bit more confidence. And so you're more likely to get more candid answers. But in addition to that individual private feedback, you want to have a full group discussion. And that allows the other students to have insight into how one another are experiencing the class and to collectively figure out how to move forward. And so one way to do this would be to pose three simple questions to prompt their feedback. The first question would be, what is working well? The second question would be, where are we falling short? And the third question would be, what suggestions or requests do you have moving forward? These usually are enough to generate useful information. Now, you could also add a fourth question to this inquiry, and that would be, would you like me to follow up with you privately for further discussion? And that would be a question that, of course, would require them to reveal their identity if it was otherwise an anonymous poll. Uh, but there are sometimes students who are navigating something particularly challenging that really requires your attention and intervention, and this is an invitation for them to communicate with you directly about that. Now, once you have gathered this information and the group has discussed how you want to move forward to continue to improve the dynamics, you want to go ahead and update the written agreement, particularly if new items need to be added to the list of norms or if existing items need to be amended or re-emphasized. Now, when should you do these check-ins? I encourage you to check in in this way at least once midway through the term, but ideally several times. The important thing is that you're not waiting until the very end of the term. That gives you feedback that you might use in your next class, but it's too late to make a difference for the experiences of the students in this class. Of course, taking action to make the changes in practice that the group suggests is important. I put together a free PDF for you, which includes the text of a community guidelines paragraph that I wrote and have used on a number of my course syllabi. If you would like an idea of how you might word your own such statement, feel free to copy mine in its entirety or revise and adapt it for your own needs. Head over to lauragreenfield.com forward slash three to grab your copy of the PDF titled Sample Class Community Guidelines Statement and plagiarize away with my enthusiastic consent. Thanks so much for listening in today, and until next time, happy teaching.